Hello, my name is Alexander Joseph, and I write stories. These stories show up in the form of short stories, poems, novels, scribbles on sticky notes in the middle of the night that are unreadable in the morning. On this podcast, over the sound of the dog barking next door, of my roommate doing his laundry, of the heat turning on and off, of the sirens in the distance, I read some of the things I've written. This is American Wasteland. Today we're going to be continuing our virtual road trip in reading my book, Five Steps to Somewhere. Last time we read Setting Out, which was the first part of five. And it was kind of the story of getting ready for this road trip that I went on. And now we're going to be reading Getting Gone, which is actually my favorite part of the book. Or maybe it's the part that I've read the most. I turned it into a long poem at, at one point. I haven't actually read anything past Getting Gone for a while, so I really like this section, and I hope you do too. So without further ado, here we are, step two, Getting Gone. Actually, there's a little bit of a do. So these are sectioned into Roman numerals, and I'm going to be reading those at the beginning of each section. So this is like section two, but then there's subsections that are Roman numerals. That makes sense. So here we go. I. When one leaves a city behind, the smokestacks and the hot dog stands and the homeless on the street corners begging for nickels or food, one finds something more. The suburbs eat up the hills and plains in a sick way and replace every beautiful thing with gray sidewalks and chain stores and unfun-looking playgrounds for kids who will grow up to office jobs and heart attacks. Beyond those expired American dreams, there is nature and sky and distant mountains so vast and blue and alive it takes your breath away. And this beauty is only enhanced by the wicked sight of civilization, which is slowly turning into a blip in your rearview mirror. Out here there are streams that turn to rivers, hills that turn to mountains, clouds that spread across a sky so blue and wide it boggles the eyes and hypnotizes the mind. Out here there are roads with little cars and even littler people in them cutting across it all. I I. I'm off, and the road is cold from the night and empty but for me and some other dreary-looking cars slugging along. I feel like I have a secret, that I am not of this place, or that somehow I am already gone, although I am but one stoplight away from my house. The mountains are still, some birds soar lazily above. There are no clouds at all. The whole world and all of the infinite stretches of pavement and dirt await. I, I, I. Before I passed out of the places I knew, and into the wild and vivid blue of the everywhere else, I passed a pull-off where, less than a week ago, me and my most recent ex-lover ended our relationship. And I believe this was good, that we ended, and I am not sad or broken feeling, as I have been about other ended things in the past. But still the ennui was there, and the sense of loss lingered as I passed that spot. It was another reminder of my reason for the journey I had just begun. This spot and the fact that I pass it again was a final affirmation of my need to go and move quickly forward. The spot passed into my rear view and then into nothingness. 
IV. I made a silent pledge right now at mile 14.8 of my trip to not let a fleeting thought pass without writing it down. So, dear reader, if there ever is one, forgive these ramblings as I ramble on over the mountains and through the desert. V. Steinbeck, in one of my favorite books, travels across the country with his dog, Charlie, and I have always thought that going off like that with a faithful companion beside me would be the thing to do. But I cherish the solitude of the road. I cherish the long pauses of sky and breath. I cherish the free feeling of just being me on my own with the whole world to see, with nothing holding me back. I have a lot of people whom I care for, and I try to love them well. I am not resentful of those I love, but from time to time, I enjoy the selfishness of going off on my own, of doing exactly what I want. I think I like being alone more than I like to admit, and need people more than I want to need them. There is a fine balance between my introverted and extroverted sides, and it's rare and pleasing to indulge one fully. That being said, my friend better have open ears for when I arrive in T-13 hours, after spending all this time alone with the horizon and bright white sun, I am sure I will have a lot to say. V.I. From 6 to 79 to 119 to 49 to 50 to 25 and so on, I have already passed and will continue to pass in and out of various highways throughout this drive, and there is something so unbelievable about the vastness of humanity and the amount of road we have been able to lay in our respectively short time here on earth. It makes me feel small to know how many people and thousands of miles of roads spread out like veins or roots or something alive and connected in front of and behind me. It makes me feel like a speck on the windshield of speeding time to know just how old the world is and how many stories and roads it holds. VII. When I was younger and dumber four or five heartbreaks ago, my friend and I drove from Colorado to the top of Washington State and we brought with us two black permanent markers. We made it our mission to stop at every sign that said falling rock and make it so the sign said falling in love rocks. It was fun then and exciting and illegal and I was still a young poet and a romantic and I guess in some ways I still am, but I'm jaded and fresh off another failed relationship. I just passed a sign that said falling rock and realized I no longer think falling in love is something that rocks as much as I think of love as complicated and often extremely painful. If I had to choose a sign to repeatedly vandalize on this trip, although I don't have the energy or time to do so, it would be any sign that says rest stop. I would write next time you begin to fall in love, rest, stop, and think again. V-I-I-I. I'm at mile 107.4 and I've rediscovered how the buzz of the road vibrates at the same frequency as my heart. Dramatic, I know, but it's true. There is a certain sound of freedom out here in the sticks with a view of snowy mountains. Fresh air fills my head and mouth and lungs, and from my speakers an old folk song plays. I am in farmland now, in long-abandoned ghost towns that used to be filled with miners and wagons and outlaws. I've suddenly been reintroduced to my old friend, this feeling of infinity known only after driving for many miles and knowing that there are still many miles to go. I am possessed by this empty, wonderful place. IX. I brought with me, as previously stated in my packing list, a Polaroid camera with 27 photos. Now I know this is an outdated form of photography according to some and a hipster cliche to others. 
I know I could take better and more photos with the camera on my cell phone, but I like the permanence of a Polaroid. I love how I have one shot and with that one shot comes a tangible photograph which I can tack on my wall. I love the blurred edges and the underdeveloped look to the pictures I take. Everything these days is too clean. I prefer the grit and the grime and the imperfections which make art and music and love and life and simple pictures feel real. I brought this camera and the photos with the intention of taking as many pictures as I can. I've been taking Polaroid portraits of the people and things I love in my life, and I have a collection of about 30 photos tacked to the wall beside my desk at my house. These portraits include members of my family, my friends, my dog, a plate of waffles and fruit, and a photo of me on a couch editing a manuscript. Since I am alone on this trip and have little to no interest in taking a photo of myself, I plan to take scenery shots and, if available, ask a passerby to take a shot for me so I can prove I was here on this trip. My first photo of the trip I took while driving and it came out blurry and extremely overexposed. The second photo I stopped my car to take and it is of a pine tree in front of a mountain. The photo is fine but for the next hour I saw better, bigger, and more breathtaking mountains than what I had stopped to take a picture of before. And to top it off, my small printed photo does not do justice to the vast mountainscape which I have been stupefied by in the last 50 miles. I've seen photos of all of these mountains taken by professional photographers at dawn or sunset from helicopters or other such high and mighty places. My little photos cannot compare, and I know this. I have long since given up trying to take decent scenery shots. I've been to the Great Wall and to the Taj Mahal and I've scuba dove in the biggest reefs in the world. Not once has a scenery shot done justice to the spectacle I intended to capture. The only images I have found to hold true to the test of time are the faces of people I have seen and met along the way, as well as photos of strange and wild little details in old-looking or weird buildings and places. So I decided to try to only take pictures of people and peculiar little things along the way of this trip as to try to not waste any film. I have 25 photos left, and I intend to use them sparingly. Although I am sure the majesty of this country and of the throbbing sky will at least one more time inspire me to try and capture its beauty. X. In order to keep track of my finances, I figured I'd write them down here. I have so far spent $6 on this trip. The money was spent on a green tea and a banana at a gas station at which the bathroom was out of order. I initially stopped to use the bathroom and figured I could use some caffeine. I got my caffeine fix, but had to stop some miles down the road to pee behind a tree, which I always enjoy more than peeing inside anyway. XI. The air out here, beyond the world, beyond all the things I know is contagious with childlike glee. I am smiling a big and goofy grin as I breathe in this gaseous sweetness, as I am consumed by the swaying trees and snow-capped peaks. XII. What is so magnificent about horses? I'm not saying they are not magnificent because they most certainly are, but why? I just saw a horse on top of a hill backgrounded by mountains which stand 15,000 feet tall, and I was nearly brought to tears. Given I am high on adventure and wired tight with caffeine, but still, there is an elegance about horses. I think it is their way of moving with their rippling muscles and seemingly effortless power that they have within each step. 
Maybe I and we as a collective find horses so wild and beautiful because they are what we are not, physically built to be able to sprint over that nearest hill, ready and willing to go forth at a moment's notice. We too have the urge to flee, but not the physical makeup to move far or quickly on our own. Maybe we tame horses because we are jealous of their wildness and ability to simply run and meet the purple horizon as we wish we could. Maybe we humans wish that with a flick of our mane and a whinny and a quick canter that we could quickly be gone and not stop until we found some new and green-eaten field on which to prance and make our own until we again decide to gallop on. Maybe we tame and break and conquer because these things we oppress have some essence of freedom we envy. XIII. I just spent $27.24 on gas. In the bathroom, I saw some graffiti that said Bulletproof Bob is dead. I wonder what killed him or if his nickname was ironic. According to the map, I have 659 miles to go. This next little while is driven in silence in honor of Bulletproof Bob and whatever fate he met. XIV. I am now officially in it, folks, officially driving, speeding in the opposite direction of my home. I realize now another layer of rot in my psyche that in part led to the trip I am currently on. The world is ending. Or at least that's how it feels. The climate is warming, the country is divided more than it has been since maybe the Civil War. Hundreds of species go extinct every day. The ocean is filled with plastic and the air in many places is thick with a brown, clinging poison smog. I don't know what I can do to help, but the whole thing, the fate of the damn world and the backwards way the government and the people are seeming to do nothing or worse in the midst of it all makes me want to run away. We have discovered the whole world. We've been to the moon. Everything is connected via virtual chatting and video calls. We have all we need and way more than that too, yet people are still starving and oppressed. I hope this will all be easily solved and that I fretted for nothing. I hope we can make peace and save ourselves, but I don't know if we can. Right now I feel like my generation will be the first to die because of man-made crises and climate. Due to the selfishness of our fathers and mothers and their mothers and fathers, we won't get to live and die like so many others have. We were dealt a bum hand in many ways. It breaks my heart and infuriates me, this state of the world. I get so overwhelmed, I sometimes drink an entire bottle of wine in one sitting or cry or lay in bed for days. The powerlessness of today and of not knowing the doom of tomorrow is sometimes painful beyond belief. So I think there are two parts pertaining to the end of the world that influenced this trip. One is that I needed to get away from the news in the premature summer and numb my mind by driving for a full day. The second reason is that I figure if the world is bound to end, and maybe soon at that, that I better see it while it's still around. XV. I just took my third picture of the trip. It was another scenery shot, but was of something not beautiful, but strange. The photo was of a hill through which the highway cuts. The strange thing is that the hill ends less than 200 feet from where the road went through it. I found it strange and somewhat unnecessary that whomever built this road thought it necessary to dynamite a small mountain in half rather than just moving the road slightly to the left. Sometimes I think we destroy just because we can. I think we secretly love the power to break great things down to rubble. XVI 
I just spent $3.69 on a bottle of water and some unsweetened black tea. I almost bought a meat stick called Big Daddy Jerky, but decided against it. 550 miles to go. XVII, the mountains waned to tree-covered hills, which waned to grasslands crisscrossed with rivers and cow farms and old barns with caved-in roofs. Cars pass me when I move too slow, and I've passed trucks and tractors and once a man leading a herd of cattle down the side of the road. Then the road picks up again, and the flatlands turn to hills, which become mountains, and I am once again surrounded by bright white snow and throbbing sky. Then the road dips and the mountains fade. This is the oscillation of the road, the breathing of the land. I am the intrepid traveler on a vehicle of metal and burning liquid made small by the vastness of the landscape. Loud music plays from my speakers and my fellow, Mr. Gray, is holding fast well. I have been hypnotized by this country and its wave-like hills and valleys, and now up again I go. XVIII. I have driven through around 500 small towns in America over my lifetime, and the breakdown of the layout of these towns seems to be as followed. Upon entering the town, you will see a mechanic shop or something of the sort overflowing with cars for sale and pieces of cars that have been taken apart. Now, it's not always a mechanic shop. It could be a junkyard or some sort of car dealership. What is most often so is that this place on the outskirts of town is full to the near brim with engines and greasy-looking broken-down machines. As you head down through the town, you will see the following, at least one Mexican restaurant, a Chinese restaurant, more than one gas station, a gift shop, which in the specifically quaint towns can be called a trading post, a coffee shop or two, a massive off-brand grocery store, and finally your one or two block Main Street consisting of a bar, a local museum, and some antique or gift shops. Now some places are getting fancy and gentrified, and will maybe have a Thai restaurant and a health food store, but this is not necessarily the norm, and really depends on the political nature of the state that you're in. Another usual small town suspect is a place claiming to be the best something, or first original something in the world, a claim which is most commonly unsubstantiated. The only exception to the justification or lack thereof of these signs in small towns was a sandwich shop in western Colorado, which claimed to have world-famous sandwiches and which most certainly was the best sandwich I ever had the privilege to eat. On the outskirts of town, you will sometimes find an elementary school, a church, and a couple of chain restaurants. Oh, and I forgot liquor stores. And depending on the state you are in, the number of liquor stores will be rivaled only by the number of pot dispensaries. XIX. When I left my house this morning at 7.15 a.m., it was 26 degrees. I was wearing a coat, a sweater, a button-down shirt, and a gray tank top. I quickly took off my coat. An hour into my trip, it had warmed up to 38 degrees, and I took off my sweater. At mile 150, I opened my windows a third of the way, and it was 47 degrees. After my first pit stop, where I spent my first $6, I got cold and put my sweater back on. By hour four of the trip, it was 55 degrees, and I took off my sweater. It is now five and a half hours into the trip, and I have on my button down, but I've taken off the tank top. I tried to drive with no shirt on, but felt weird doing so. The open button-down shirt allows for the most wind, and the tank top was holding in too much heat. It is now 71 degrees. Both front windows are open. 
a song I very much like is on the radio. I just passed three painted horses running in a field beside the road. The air smells like cut grass and dust. There are clouds in the sky, but the sun is still hot and dominating. My lips are dry and life is pretty good. I forgot this feeling of the road. I forgot how much it fills me up. I forgot how much I love this sort of thing. XX. I just passed a hill on top of which was a phallic rock. It was named Chimney Rock according to the signs on the roadside. It did not look like a chimney. Trust me, as I was a sweep for nearly a year and a half, that rock looked like a 40-foot-high penis. That is what it should be called. What an attraction that would be. XXI. I used to play a game with a friend of mine in which we would wonder if anything we ever said or did was done or said for the first or only time that day in the world. Most of the time it was hard to think that we were saying something unique as there are literally billions of talking, joking, thinking people around the world. Chances are somebody has said the same thing as you. I think it's possible to think a new thought and to tell a new story, but I think it's rare. There are just so many people doing so many things all the time. Sometimes it seems like everything within reason has been done. I'm sure the drive I am doing, Boulder, Colorado, to Phoenix, Arizona, is done by many people every day. But am I the first to do the drive today? Am I the only one? And if I'm not, who are these other people? Will they have the same thoughts as me? Will they pee behind a tree? Will they see the message about Bulletproof Bob? Will they drive with their windows open? Will they wonder about Chimney Rock? Will they wonder about me? Obviously, I'll never know, but I like to think there is at least one person somebody else out there, maybe a few miles ahead of me, or a couple hundred miles behind. Maybe we are listening to the same song on the radio station right now. Maybe we will just pass each other. Maybe I will stop at the gas station and this person on the same journey as me will give me a head nod, and I will return the nod with a smile before we both head off on our same but separate ways. XXII I just passed a short woman in her late 60s on the roadside. She was being handcuffed by two burly, big-bellied white cops. I wonder what she did. I'm guessing drunk driving, but it's a Friday at 1.36 p.m. Oh well, good luck to her, I guess. It's 74 degrees, things are heating up. XXIII. Note on small towns. To add to the aforementioned breakdown of small towns, the section is not meant to demean. I am from a small town myself, and my hometown has the very things I listed. I just noticed a pattern and felt a need to share it, take it or leave it. XXIV. Quick question. Has there ever been a house in the middle of nowhere that doesn't have some sort of truck for sale in its front lawn? I think not. XXV. Kerouac ate sandwiches across the country, bologna and cheese if I remember correctly. A sandwich is a good choice for a travel lunch, I agree, but I disagree with the meat and cheese. It's all about peanut butter. Jelly or honey if you have it, but peanut butter even on its own is a godsend. I've survived off of peanut butter for weeks on end in India, Thailand, and China and eat it still every day. I don't really eat bread though. I get fat easily and I can feel my belly growing every time I eat bread, so I don't Rice cakes are my chosen peanut butter companion. I could live off these things for a long time. 400 miles into my trip, I stopped to pee behind another tree, then made myself a lunch of peanut butter and a rice cake. Then I set off again. XXVI 
We all live in bubbles, personal bubbles, social, political bubbles, racial bubbles, geographical bubbles. I'm from Colorado, and when I hear or think of my home state, I think of mountains and log cabins and skiing and wind and sunshine and clear night skies filled with stars. I've been driving for over seven hours, and I'm still in the same state, although I can't believe it. Where I am now, the buildings are made of adobe. There are no mountains in sight, and I can see more Spanish on the signs than English. Well, there are mountains, but they are dry and flat-topped like mesas. This feels like Mexico, or at least the southwest, but it's still Colorado through and through. This place, too, is a bubble. And I'm sure anybody from here who happened upon the place in which I live would be shocked they were in the same state as they set off from. XXVII. According to my map, I am currently speeding down Highway 666. Frankly, I'm surprised that a Christian-majority country would allow a highway to be numbered this way, but I think it is kind of cool. The weird thing about this is that it happens to be beautiful here. There are golden rolling hills that meet with mesa-topped cliffs in the distance. There are a few cars in the sky, which is a blinding blue, eats up most of the scenery. There are no life signs but the cars. This is the freest, most untouched part of my trip so far in terms of scenery, and it's on a highway with the devil's number. I don't believe in God or hell or really much of anything at all, but if I did believe in hell, I would not picture it like this. I would happily live here, just me and a couple hundred acres of dirt beneath this endless sky. If there should be a highway, 666, a highway with such an evil-seeming number, it should cut through an old nuclear testing site with craters and the bones of mutilated test animals and fake half-burned-down model towns. That sounds much more hellish to me. XXVIII. Nearly 500 miles in, it is now 85 degrees. The windows are hot to the touch. I haven't seen a non-hand-painted road sign for about an hour. Out here there are more cows than really anything else. I've crossed the Colorado state line into northern Arizona, and the only real difference I can see is that the dirt here is brick red. I think I would go crazy if I lived out here with nothing but the dead grass and the ever-stretching sky. Maybe there is a sanity in the city after all. This openness out here is overwhelming and agoraphobic. Maybe there is a hellish aspect to these rolling hills. There is an eternity of wandering to be done without seeing anything different than what you've already seen. Maybe the highway number 666 is starting to make a bit of sense. XXIX. There is no service out here, as in cell phone service, but I guess I mean more than that. There is nothing out here that seems to work. There is sand instead of dirt, and nothing but dead-looking shrubs grow here. The sky is blank in an empty and kind of freaky-seeming way. There are no buildings or houses or people, just scrublands as far as the eye can see. This place has no service. This seems like a nothing place, and it seems the world has forgotten it even exists. It is 87 degrees. It's just me and the red dirt now. XXX. Just spent $30.96 on gas and $12.31 on a black tea, a water, and some beef jerky. At this gas station, there was no graffiti in the bathroom, but on the faucet, the hot valve would not move. There was only cold water, and it was really, really cold water, which is weird because it is now 90 degrees outside, and I am in the middle of the fully-fledged desert. The ground is now almost completely adobe in color, and there is little green in sight. The dominant color here is a dirty red-brown, which covers everything from the cars to the fences, 
to the road signs, to the faces of the people I've seen, to now my shoes. X, 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 I. What I thought might happen has happened. My murmurings to the wind recorded here have grown more abstract as the day has gone on. This could be because I am losing my mind, or because I am beginning to find it, or really just because I have been driving for a really long time. The more the world rushes past, the less I ever want to go back to it. The chains of jobs and rent and everything else weigh heavy, but the burden of the thought of eventually having to return to them is lessened in the rip of the wind. I've begun to realize that amidst all of the reasons, I'm on this trip because I am truly me, truly free and howling happy when I'm out here on the road with a long way to go and nothing to do but keep on as the shrubs and cities and whatever else flashes by like an unwanted thought. XXXII. There is some astrological way of guessing somebody's life using the numbers of the day and year and month in which they were born. Now I don't believe in much, but my mother believes in the astrological numbers, and so I have heard my numbers and their meanings many times. I just spoke to my mother on the phone as I drove through this land of red soil and cloud. She reminded me of my numbers. Now, when somebody has a five in their numbers, it means supposedly that they will like to travel. I have three fives. I'm 23 years old, and I've been to nearly 20 countries. I've driven across the United States a handful of times, and I'm always planning my next trip. Up until this past year, a couple months has been the longest I have gone without some trip. I needed this trip, I realize. I needed to itch this scratch of the road, or scratch this itch of the road, whichever way makes sense. Give me a road and a car or a sky and a plane or a path and some feet to walk with. Give me a passport in my pocket and a pat on the back. Give me a new place or a market on a foreign street. Give me fresh air. Give me bright stars or an ocean or a language different than my own. Give me rock formations and bright colors and waterfalls and statues of Buddha 50 feet tall. Give me waves to surf or walls to climb. The more I move today, the more I realize this is what I am meant to do. I am full with my boots on the ground, with my foot pressed on the pedal, with a 17-hour flight looming ahead of me. I am of the nomadic persuasion, as my ancestors were. I prefer a trip to practically everything else, and today I realize that those lovesick with an ancient wanderlust like me don't want to travel. We need to or we will go insane. Give me an open blue sky and a folk song and a full tank of sky and then leave me be, for in these moments I am truly free. XXXIII. There is an old saying or set of questions that I have heard attributed to the Cherokee, but I am not sure if that is true. The quote goes as follows. When was the last time you cried, laughed, danced, and sang? I've done all of these things today at some point on my drive. I cried as I passed the spot where me and my ex-lover parted ways. I laughed at some jokes from my radio. I danced to the music from a playlist I made for this trip. I've sung more or less the whole time I've been driving, out of key and almost without sound on account of the wind. This trip has got to be some sacred venture to make me do all those things nearly at once. XXIV One of my favorite lines from one of my favorite songs from one of my favorite albums of all time goes as follows. God is a place where some holy spectacle lies. And what a line that is, the very utterance of it gives me chills. I hope I can write one line as powerful as that in my lifetime. However, I kind of disagree with it right now. I don't think God is where the holy spectacle lies, but what is found and felt on the way to that holy spectacle. 
for I found that the destination is often the least holy part of any pilgrimage. I found that the sacred knowledge is gleaned from the wind-blown whisper of the road, not as much at the final destination. Do we live life so we can reach the end, or do we live each moment fully? Do we kiss hard and eat well and watch the sunset and howl at the moon and all those other cliche things? Do we dance in the shower and laugh with our mouths open? Life is meant to be lived one second at a time, not coasted through to reach some great finish line. Or at least that's how I feel at 23 with all sorts of short-sighted false wisdom and privilege. There is no holy spectacle at the end of all things. Instead, the profundity is within the journey and passed by like a bush, passed while going 75 miles per hour. In these places of dust, I'm reminded to hold tight to every second of every daily quest, be it simple or lifelong, for it is in these holy processes, these everyday sacred waking meditations, that I learn who I really am and what it really means to be alive. XXXV This is our three on native land. Well, in some ways it all is, but this is legally their land now, what is left of it, and it is desolate. By native I mean Native American, and by that I mean Navajo, as in that is to whom the land on which I am driving belongs, or more, this is the land they were forced onto after white people like me took their true homes. Here are some things I have seen on this land. Four dead dogs on the side of the road over 200 miles. A goat get hit by a car. More destroyed or abandoned trailers than trailers in livable condition. A house made of sticks. A house made of mud. Not a single health food store or non-fast food restaurant three casinos, five reservation police vehicles, 18 gas stations, four hitchhikers, one old yellow car on fire. XXXVI. I've found hell, maybe. It's red and desolate. The highway cuts through it and nobody stops. There is nowhere to go. It's not as much terrifying as it is lonely and creepily still. The houses are broken down and the people are stone-faced and stuck with some haunting and deeply unsettling gaze. The roadside glitters with a stream of shards from broken bottles. The sky is dark with clouds. It's not that this place isn't beautiful. It could be if it weren't haunted with the knowledge that these people are oppressed and forced to live here in squalor, broken and forgotten like a concentration camp. Like an animal with a broken neck on the side of the road, blinking its last few blinks before it begins to rot, this place seems to be injured deeply. These people seem to be bleeding internally as if their very insides have begun to turn, and I know why. It's our fault. It's my fault. I took a picture here of a rock I thought might look okay. It turned out too bright and small looking. Then I got back on the road and got out of there as fast as possible. Sure that something unseen but wicked nonetheless was following me. XXXVII. I just saw my first billboard in two hours. It was a PSA about helping to lower the suicide rate in this area, which I presume is high. I have a strange feeling that if there was some sort of nuclear holocaust, this place would look the exact same. XXXVIII. The billboard I just saw was about 20 miles from the suicide prevention billboard. This one shows a silhouette of a man with his hands out looking up at the sky. Over the photo, the sign reads, Where are all of God's miracles? Below the word is a website. 
I presume the intention of the billboard is to get people to go to the website to see where the miracles are. But instead, the sign reads as an exasperated question that anybody who has been driving through this place for the last few hundred miles must have asked themselves in one form or another. A little ways down the road is another billboard promoting the good work the local coal company is doing for the Navajo community. XXXIX The last two hours of the day proceeded in a sort of haze while I tried not to fall asleep or get too depressed about the desolation I was driving through. XL Spent $22.95 on gas and $3.50 on a coconut water. When I arrived at the gas station, there were over 40 motorcycles. They all left at once like a flock of metal loud things, and as they left, they surrounded me on all sides as they pulled out of the parking lot. On the ground beside the pumps was a question mark spray-painted in neon pink spray paint. On the way back to my car from buying the coconut water, there were three girls, all of whom were obviously related and none of whom were over ten. One girl called out that the last one to make it to the car would be a dipshit. When the last girl arrived at the car, she and the first girl to arrive at the car got into a quick but brutal seeming fist fight. The bathroom was occupied and it was dark out, so I left. XLI, 800 miles in, cruise control on 65, 73 degrees outside, 8.26 p.m. Both front windows are open and the air feels body temperature. It's dark and the neon taillights bleed into red blurs in front of me. There are police sirens somewhere. I can see them reflecting off of the clouds in the distance. I've got a song on repeat and I sort of feel like I'm driving in place. 47 miles to go. XLII. Car crashes in films don't do justice to the violent reality. Mainly they are too slow and often actually in slow motion. When a real car crash happens, it is done in an instant. Accidents happen in a flash and a spin and a result in broken glass and bruised or dead bodies and an eerie deathly silence is all that follows. Everything is fast in our world, or at least is expected to be. Maybe part of the thrill of a long road trip is the slowing down of life, while at the same time getting to feel real speed and the danger of death for hours on end. Obviously the airplane goes faster than a car, but while on a flight you don't see the land blurring by, nor do you hear and feel the rush of air. There is no pedal to put your foot on, nor a wheel to grasp. Driving somewhere is the hard and brutal way to go, and it is somehow always both way too long and never short enough. The moon is full and bright in the sky. It is 75 degrees. My shoulders are sore and the same song is still on the radio. XLIII, 18 miles from my destination, took my shoes and socks and shirt off. It's 91 degrees at 9 p.m. at night. XLIV, arrived in one piece. Thank you for tuning in to American Wasteland. I so appreciate you supporting my writing. I am trying to write all the time, trying to submit, trying to teach and do everything I can to know as much about writing and reading and anything about the craft. And this podcast has really helped me to practice going through my own writing and also in terms of being able to share my stuff with people that maybe wouldn't read it otherwise. Um, And you, whoever you are, are part of that part of my craft. As you can hear in the background, there's a siren and there's probably heat in the background as well. And that's kind of part of this podcast, the rawness.
all of the stuff that is going on behind me and in my life is very much part of this and influences my stories and that's why I leave it in and the music that you're hearing in the background of this part of the intro and the outro is written by my friend Cora Feeder F-E-D-E-R check her out she has great music great folk music and yeah uh, I try to get a podcast out as much as I possibly can it's around every two weeks on average Um, We just reached over 4,000 listens. This is going to be dated pretty quickly because I think we're growing and growing. By we, I mean just me and uh, the American Wasteland SoundCloud account and the iTunes account. So thanks again for tuning in. My website is alexanderjosephwriter.com. I recently updated it, so go check it out. Send me a message. Tell me what you think about the podcast. Thanks again for listening, and tune in next time.